Hey, welcome to the Gospel Rant. This is Dr. Bill Senior again on the podcast. Uh, we're looking at Romans, the book of microaggressors. You know, I'm just not sure where to start with this podcast because, I mean, we've been just playing with the, the microaggressor thing until now. This book is really historically from the church's perspective a microaggressor. So I want to step back, pan out, right, use that lens, a broad vision to look at all of the 29 verses of Romans 9 kind of as a whole. Because, like I said, Romans 9 is a microaggressor. In fact, I can't think of another chapter in the entire Bible that has caused more division, more angst, more anger, heresy trials, people being burned alive at the stake has caused more denominations to be formed and break away from uh, previous denominations. Here's the question. Do I get to heaven based upon my free will and choice or does God elect me? Right. That's the that's the spectrum. So if, if it's God's election, the latter, how do I answer for those who aren't called? How do I explain that? Particularly the good people, people who are better than me, more spiritual. Then on the other hand, if it's the former, if it's purely choice and free will, why do I pray that God intervenes, right, to make that person believe, give them a new heart against their free will, right? You see what I mean? So on both sides, there's hypocrisy, and I don't think we see it anymore. And and I think it's crazy to think this is what Paul had in mind for Romans 9, that this was the, the headline. I think we bury the headline. Because look, Romans 9 is right after Romans 8, right? Captain Obvious, the hub of Romans, the center of Paul's theology, and Right. And that's all about how we can't lose the love of God, that he loves me no matter what, which would include have bad theology, all because of the Holy Spirit in us. So Romans 9, even so, it's led to division and hatred and accusations and discord. Really? See, I think we've messed this up big time. (laughs) Are you intrigued? And by the way, I get it. I'm going to be hammered. This is a divisive chapter. There's blood all over it. Well, there's blood all over our interpretations and applications of it. And my sense of the chapter is going to be very different than the typical standard fare, right? But remember, the standard fare has led to divisiveness and discord. I'm just saying, all I'm asking you to do is to, you know, don't cross your arms. Don't roll your eyes in your head. Just listen. You know, give me some credit here. And and if you reject it, you reject it. That's fine. All right? All right, here we go. Context is king here. This is Paul we're talking about. So let's go back and track what he's been saying and the order that he has been saying it. Romans 7, a personal confession of failure, personal disappointment. See, I know better. I want to do righteously. I want to please God, but I'm not pulling it off. And I'm the apostle Paul. So if I can't do righteousness, who's going to? Even though I'm a spirit-filled believer, I'm sinning. And he speaks of it almost metaphorically as an entity dwelling in him. Don't think the demon realm. It's it's his brain, and it's seemingly winning. His brain, not so different from yours or mine, has got to be saying, at least that nasty critical voice in his brain is saying, Paul, you're a failure. Paul, you're a hypocrite. Paul, you're a disappointment to Jesus. You shouldn't be an apostle, right? Turn Turn in your badge. And so Paul says, who can help me? Romans 8, no worries, Paul, you have the Holy Spirit in your inner being. It's his job, his passion, his wheelhouse to love sinners like you, to make sinners like you feel loved, loved by God. And to be clear, sinning sons of God, 
He loves you, sinning adopted sons and daughters of God. And so the stark, unbelievable, very personal thing for Paul is that he gets it in Romans 8 that God adores sinners. Jesus purchased that on the cross for sinners. God loves Romans 7-esque sinners. That's all there are. As much as the Father loves the Son, the Son loves the Spirit. Nothing, nothing can tear you away from that love. You may not feel it all the time or even much of the time, but God's love for you will not change. I mean, this is the big deal in Romans 8. No matter how far in Romans 7 rabbit hole you've fallen. Isn't that stunning good news? If you don't believe that to be true, you've missed the point of the entire book of Romans. Romans 8 is Paul's hub chapter. Everything else rotates around it then and today. All right, but then boom, Romans 9. And if you look historically, it looks like Romans 9 is the hub chapter based upon the debate and all the all the hoopla, but it's not. All right, let me invite you into Paul's head a bit. And I get it. There's some speculation to be sure, and you can accuse me of that if you disagree. I get that. But we've all been participating in speculation about Paul's mind. Don't kid yourself that this is not happening. Most commentators historically imagine implicitly Paul is calmly sitting there, right, with his cup of coffee and his computer. He's writing a doctoral thesis here on election and the calling activity of God. He's trying to make this careful distinction between free will and will and choice and calling. And he's got his research and and like a cognitive uh, grad student, he's laying out a clear-headed bullet points to convince even the most scholarly person, right, his thesis advisor, that he's got to be correct. So imagine Paul with a whiteboard, taking down notes and filling it up, or a white rock, right, with his copious notes, arrows drawn from one point to another because he needs to be accurate and linear. And all the documentation, of course, footnoted uh, in an AMA style. Well, that's speculation, but that's how we imagine it and teach it. But I... I'm asking, is that right? Dr. Paul, the author, editor, scholar? Well, could be, but I'm also saying maybe not. I don't think it's as clear as we've made it to be. See, I imagine that Paul is emotionally reeling still after the stark vulnerability, personal, personal nature of Romans 7, right? This deep confession that the transparency could scuttle his reputation and career. He've just, he has just given enemies a bat. And then he's, he plunged into the, the height, the intimacy of Romans 8, particularly remembering that Paul was, you know, remember he was the righteous, angry warrior who felt like he could murder people in the name of God for not being righteous and Jewish, right? His career was to murder in the name of God, those Romans 7 folks. And all of a sudden, Romans 8. He's loved by God, as he is. Well, I suspect a lot of emotions were bubbling over as he wrote, right? Doesn't it make sense? There's no way that he was like Dr. Spock on Star Trek here, being purely emotionalist, or he was talking like a PhD student. I I don't think so. I think this was personal. Romans 8, swimming in the love of God for him as he is, not as he should be. Paul, the Roman sevener, not Paul who by effort and choice has beat Romans 7 and cured sin in him. No, he is immersed in this stunning, wonderful, and troubling love of God for Romans 7 sinners, for people like him, right? And then 
there's this little voice in his head, we all have it, that says, well, if God loves sinners, if God is good to his word, what about all your sinning brothers and sisters, the Jews? Paul, are they worse than you? I mean, you you thought so early on, but have you changed your mind on that? Have they crossed some imaginary righteousness line that, that causes them to be rejected from the love of God, right? More so than you when you were a murderer, hypocritical, self-righteous, killing people, right? No, Paul can't be. So here it is. Here's the question, right? Take a breath. Here it is. Then why did God save me? That's the headline. Why did God save me? I think that's what Paul's struggling with. See, he's saying, I don't figure it. I brought nothing to the table that set me apart other than I was a murderer. I mean, maybe other people considered it. I did it. I wasn't pursuing God. I thought I was, but I wasn't. He pursued me. He knocked me off the horse. He chased me down. He dragged me into his arms, kicking and screaming. I had to be blinded and isolated, in fact. It was hard for me, right? I wasn't that free willer who said, choose me, God. God went the extra mile for me and then had to go another mile, then another mile. So why me and not other Jews? Not my people, not God's people that he made promises to, including, by the way, Romans 9, 4, adoption as sons and daughters. I mean, listen, that's the very same word that Paul uses to speak of our adoption as sons and daughters of God. See the the troubling nature of that? And Paul gets it or doesn't get it. He, He raises it, which is very bold. It is so difficult to explain. But the biggest issue is the question, I can understand why God rejects those who rejected him, but then why and pursue and adore me who rejected him? That's a great question. It's a humbling question. All right. So I believe that Romans 9 is in some way parallel to Romans 7. So imagine Romans being a mountain and Romans 8 is the pinnacle. And then Romans 7, 9 are just both a little down the slope parallel, a B, A, B structure. Uh, for for you linguist, and the two Bs, Romans 7 and 9, you know, being different, but also being similar in some ways. So Romans 7 is emotional and personal, and it asks questions it can't answer. It ends with an open question. If this is true, who can save me? Who can love me? Who? And the answer is God, because of the Spirit. He does love Paul, even though he makes no human sense at all. And Romans 9, then, it too is emotional and personal and asks questions it can't answer. It ends with an open question, but then why did God spare and love me and not all the other Jews? And in the end, there's an answer, because God. See, very similar, B-A-B structure. Uh, So let's read Romans 9, 1 to 5, and let's see if I can convince you of this. Can you feel the emotion? Doesn't sound like a grad student to me doing a lecture. Can you feel the struggle that Paul is having with this question? He he talks about unceasing anguish. And, and in the Greek, that means unceasing anguish. Look, I have said often that in any and all conversations that deal with God's sovereignty and election and heaven and hell and free will, if we aren't weeping, we're out of sync with God. We're out of sync with Paul. For even one person, right, to be rejected, to go to hell, to not be loved as much as anybody else should cause us to be miserable, particularly the more and more we see our sinful state from which God not only loved us, 
but our current sinful state from which God now loves us and adores us as we are. If our brain can't still say, why me, and then turns to say, well, that person deserves to go to hell. Can we see how out of sync we are? I mean, so I, I'll say it. I deserve to go to hell. I don't deserve God's pursuit, God's love, God's caring. It, it doesn't make any sense. It doesn't compute with my brain. And yet, nothing could be more true. And this should be personal, and it should be emotional, and it should raise a bunch of questions that I can't answer. Romans 9. So I look at around to people who are more loving than me, more caring than me, more spiritual than me, and yet they reject God. So why am I in his arms? Because I rejected him too for 21 years. And honestly, I'll say it, I reject him daily one degree or another. And yet for some unknown reason, God pursued me. I didn't pursue him. He knocked me off my high horse. He had to make me see over and above my free will. He stepped all over it. And I don't get it. I don't understand it. It makes God wonderful, but also frightening in my eyes. He's bigger than I thought. And so Paul begins to turn his sizable gray matter into trying to figure out why. Like Romans 7, he's not being logical or well thought out. He's not leading to a final point where he goes, therefore, he's racking his brain to explain the discrepancies. And there's lots of them. He is God-splaining, right? You heard of mansplaining. I won't do it because that would be mansplaining. Paul is God-splaining, and none of his arguments really get to the to the result that he wants. All right, verses 6 to 13, read it on your own. So, God adopted Israel. He made promises to them, some conditional and some early ones like Genesis 12. If you read the first verses of Genesis 12, they're unconditional. So God makes promises. This is God making promises to Israel. So Paul says, that can't be, you can't write that off. So we have to look at who's Israel. But it would seem Paul's conclusion as he's tossing out there is that not all physical Abraham DNA-carrying descendants can be considered objects and persons of the promise. So that's logical, right? If not all Jews are saved and God says, here's my unconditional promises to Israel, then therefore we have to understand what Israel means. And okay, it's never been genetic. Paul's absolutely right. This is not new theology. It's always been spiritual. So there are Jews who are descendant of Abraham who are not object of promise and inheritance. There are Jews who are object of inheritance who have not done anything worthy at all. And he, he goes to Jacob and Esau before birth. God called, God chose, God wrote the story for both Jacob and Esau before they did anything. They were in the womb. You can't do anything righteous in the womb. And by the way, even later, neither son was much to speak about. If God foreknew Jacob was a good guy, all right, that'd be a different narrative. But that's not the case. You wouldn't want your daughter bringing either boy home. You wouldn't make them elders in your church. You certainly wouldn't sleep well if they were youth volunteers. I'm just saying. And yet God mysteriously calls one over the other. Why? He doesn't tell us. Reasons unknown. Well, isn't that unjust? No. Paul's correct. God's not unjust. As some things we can take as truisms. And Paul asks and partially answers. No, of course not. Bottom line, God is just. In the end, God's righteousness will be declared to the heavens and the earth, meaning we'll all get it. In the end, 
But in the moment, God's justice is inscrutable. We can't know it, right? Why do we think we can? But we can't. And then Paul goes theoretical here, partly helpful, but I have to say, partly not. God's calling is not about justice and earning. It's a function of mercy. Okay, so again, Paul is, is right. He's jumping around. I'm, I'm going to suggest he's not being as rational as a PhD student would be after careful elaboration. So mercy is what's given to someone who doesn't deserve it, who's helpless, who can't lift themselves up, can't provide for themselves. Uh, so uh, one commentary says this, to say it is unfair for God only to have mercy on some is self-contradictory statement. Because mercy is not owed, it's based upon a person's neediness and the giver's compassion. So you can't say it's unfair, technically, theoretically speaking, but I don't think that's where Paul, I don't think that's the, I think that's bearing the headline, right? But he's right. Fair enough. It doesn't help much at all to tell you the truth. The shock is that God does not extend his compassion to everyone, right? Um, is that an even playing field? It does not go very far to answer the, the question Paul raised, why me? So technically, it's not unjust, right? Because it's mercy, not not uh, a wage. But it's not a fair playing field either, at least by human standards, the way we set up things. So Paul shifts. He jumps. He skids to a different topic related to a non-Jew, Pharaoh. Interesting approach. So in what would appear to be contradictory statements, a Gordian knot that the Bible honestly just doesn't unravel, a time when here's a time when we long for editors and footnotes from God himself to clarify things. Here it is. God hardens the heart of Pharaoh. Well, really? That doesn't seem fair. And even more so, Paul knows it that Scripture seems unclear, humanly speaking, in this case. In one case, we're told God hardens Pharaoh, and another, Pharaoh hardens his own heart. Well, which one is it? And, and is this important? And why is this important? And do I need to figure it out? Well, for millennia, we've tried to reconcile this discrepancy. And of course, they're both true. In one sense, it doesn't matter because Pharaoh was already under a heavenly death sentence for not only crimes against humanity, right? The infanticide of Jews in Egypt, but on top of that, the infanticide of God's chosen and protected people. So he's condemned by his choices and actions, right? Free willers rejoice. But then God hardens his heart so he can play a role in the exodus, God's election, God's calling people. And God can use him for narrative stuff before the judgment comes down. I get that, right? So he's in death row and God still uses him. I, I get that. It's a little troubling, but all right, I get that. But come on. Paul was a murderer of God's chosen people too and was hardening his own heart, right? He was resentful. He was angry. He was enraged. Too. But different from Pharaoh, God breaks in and softens his heart. God doesn't harden his heart, right? He finds him on death row and he makes him see. See the difference? Why him? Couldn't God have done that for Pharaoh? Yes. It would have changed the Broadway play, but okay, that's fine. In a moment of pure enlightenment and Jewishness, now Paul remembers and shifts his what I would say, personally, an emotional ranting, right? Not crazy ranting, but, you know, he's wrestling with stuff openly for us to watch. A moment of Jewish clarity, right? Because every Jewish boy and girl would know that they're not God. And using a very familiar Hebrew metaphor, right? This is nothing new. Paul says, 
Well, you know, now that I think about it, I'm just dumb clay in contrast to God, who is the skill artisan, the shaper of the clay. So it'd be absurd and dangerous and even disrespectful for the clay to complain or question the potter, right? And by the way, even Paul at this point realizes he doesn't have an answer. He's just questioning the potter, right? Or is it, listen, dangerous and disrespectful for the, com- the clay to complain? Well, apparently not. See, I would suggest that much of the Old Testament is regular people, clay vessels who are questioning the potter. Complaints, even the absurd ones, are enshrined in holy writ. They're God-breathed, not condemned, not judged. It seems that God not only allows for it, but honors it. Think Ecclesiastes, most of the Psalms, Job, on and on, all questioning God's justice and fairness and covenant faithfulness, all knowing in the end, that God will be right. He'll be declared to be fair and just. But for now, there's no way that the authors can see it. His his path and motivation, the reason he's doing things, why he's doing things, what is he doing in the long run, are inscrutable. So 9, 22 to 23, Paul argues that very thing. God is God. He can do whatever he wants. And it's followed by four Old Testament passages that agree with him. Well... I could go on, but in the end, I hope I've proven this, Paul's elaborate argument for election falls back on God saying, because I say so. (laughs) Hardly satisfying to theologians. It doesn't answer the question, why me and not other Jews? That remains above Paul's pay grade and my pay grade. It's inscrutable. And this is where Paul leaves it. Romans 9, well, it's maddening. And here's the microaggression I want to dwell on. Uh, Not that that's maddening. Uh, My microaggression is more in our motivation. We post-Enlightenment Christians, post-Reformation Christians can't leave it there. We toss a bunch of bumper stickers at it. We polarize into these strict, rigid camps that, that somehow believe, at least implicitly, that it's clear. And it isn't. We read Paul and conclude that he has a conclusion. But he doesn't. I don't see it. Could it be that, like Romans 7, Paul is involved in biblically approved, theological, emotional, and personal ranting? He's wrestling with these difficult truths that he he can't unravel on the witness stand, in some ways modeling, get this, how we're to deal with such difficult truths, such high truths that seem to be at odds with each other. See, I think Paul is showing us the way. Could it be that we're not to come to a conclusion? theologically speaking, other than God's ways are higher than our ways. And if that's true, then we have to answer historically for every death, every heresy proclaiming, every isolation, every disrespect that has happened related to the question of God's election calling in our choice. Again, over and above the thing that Paul is actually clear about, God says so. Right? We can agree with that, right? In the end, if we were objective, even the most radical of the two election camps are in practice uh, not consistent. So extreme electionist, right? The so-called, by the way, wrongly labeled Calvinist, even though I believe the Calvin would be offended by so much of what is done in his name. If we read book three of his institutes, it sounds like Romans 8. But that rarely sees the light of day and he gets zero credit for his work on the spirit. I mean, he's all about election and calling and I would suggest he's more about the spirit. 
All right, but even the most extreme reformed pastor, and I'm in that camp, speaks to his or her congregation about the importance of personal choice and accountability, right? On any given Sunday, reformed pastors sound like Arminians. And then the most extreme free willers, the most rabid Arminians, will, push comes to shove, pray that God would intervene to save their friend or family member and would make them believe, stepping all over their free will if necessary. Well, right? The most rabid Arminian often sounds like a Calvinist. It's very confusing if consistency is your bag. You with me? So, in summary, I think Paul is publicly and transparently modeling venting, modeling biblical complaining, modeling wrestling with inscrutable questions, and coming up with some answers, some not. But in the end, he throws up his hands and says, I don't know, it's over my pay grade. God says so. And this is where I land. Of course, God elects and calls. Nothing could be clearer. Of course, the person must and, and, and will choose. Nothing can be clearer. How, why, when, what order, what's God's motivation, what's he doing in the short run, long run, what's the active role of the Spirit in making it happen, what's the role of imperfect choice, <sighs> right? Now, by the way, to side note real quick, I do reject the notion of free will. Not choice and not accountability, but this free will. Before you pop a cog, check this out. We now know that our brains do nothing free, nothing unhindered and undirected. Nothing objective. Free will assumes that it, someone, anyone, can be totally objective. Man, that's a unicorn. That's a Sasquatch. That's Loch Ness Monster. Uh, no one has that freedom of will. Our prefrontal cortex doesn't have that free reign. There's a midbrain, this huge midbrain with chemicals and habits and memories that often ties us up in knots. Take an addict, for instance. Does an addict have free will? No. Are they accountable for their choices? Yes, but it's not free. It's not objective, right? Consider the difficulties that a woman might have trusting God as a father figure if she's been abused by her earthly father. So no, she's not free. The playing field's not flat. I'm just saying, even the most ardent Arminian will tell you that when they see Jesus face to face, they will acknowledge that it was God who saves. It was God who calls, who birthed them again. God did it. They didn't do it. God born them again. You know, sorry for the verb. And they would be right. Everyone will, at least in heaven, bow and give all the credit to their sonship and daughtership to God and God's working. They will. Then then we're okay with it. It's just now. For now, we really have to, it's something about us that we have to have it make sense and be logical. And, and A leads to B leads to C, therefore D, right? Well, Paul, too, seems to be there, but I'm suggesting that he ends up being okay with not understanding it any more than he doesn't understand why God loves him, the Romans 7 er. <laughs> so why was Paul called elected, saved, and not other Jews? Not clear. Why was Jacob called over Esau? Not clear. Why was Pharaoh's heart hardened by God? Not clear. Why was Israel called and not New Jersey? Well, okay, that makes a little sense. Only kidding. Love you, New Jersey. The answer is simply and troublingly put, because God says so. I, I do not humanly like that any more than Job or Jeremiah or David or Paul. But hey, it's there. And God's ways are higher than our ways. The Bible says so. So let's stop making up polarized theological camps that oversimplify this godness, labeling one camp as unlovable heretics and the other as obviously righteous. It can't lead to anything good. 
Now, I'm all for ongoing discussions and debates. I love that. The Bible is accurate and true and worthy of that. And in the end, God is the just and righteous. Matter of fact, only God is. And we can have strong opinions. I do. But you can also have strong opinions that disagree with me. You would be wrong, but still adored by God. Amen? God loves us equally. God And Jesus paid for that. He loves us as much as the Father loves the Son and the Spirit, and the Son and the Spirit love the Father. All right, this would be a great time for another shameless plug for the dance, www.the-dance.org. If you come here today struggling with a Roman 7 heart, your disappointment to God, you're something wrong with your faith or you, you would love, really love the Roman 8-esque dance. I'm begging you to go through it. If you're struggling with election and choice, heaven and hell of Romans 9, oh my goodness, you will begin to feel such peace and joy in Romans 8-esque, the dance, if, if only for a little while. Check it out. It's short. It only takes a couple hours. And look, if it isn't a good experience, we'll return your fee. That is not a problem. But I, we're going to suggest it's such a valuable use of your time and puts Romans 7 and Romans 9 back in their perspective. Romans 8 is the key, right? So after the dance, you can go back to the struggle with, with new freedoms. No worries. All right. Well, that's it for now. Sorry for the length. See you next time on the Gospel Rant. Dedicating time each day to spend feeding our minds and our hearts the truth of God's Word is immensely helpful in our growth as followers of Christ. I'm John Stonge, and each day I host a show called Daily Devotions with Pastor John. On the show, I spend just a few minutes taking an applicational look at one or two verses of Scripture before coming to the Lord in prayer. If you'd like to make a habit of spending more time meditating on the truth of God's Word, you can listen to Daily Devotions with Pastor John at lifeaudio.com or on your favorite podcasting app.